Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. War is a serious business, but one of the best ways to prepare for that serious business is by playing games. That seemingly paradoxical conclusion reveals an important truth. Games offer the combination of realistic constraints and controlled experiments while allowing for the role of chance to test approaches to complex problems. Our guests today from CNA Corporation are experts in developing and deploying games as training and educational tools and are here to discuss their work and its significance for national security professionals. Chris Steinitz is a senior research scientist on CNA's gaming and integration team and has been involved in wargaming for most of his nearly 14 years at CNA. In his varied career at CNA, Chris has also conducted studies on topics such as climate change, maritime security cooperation, coalition building, and North Korea's strategic calculus. Dr. Aaron Sullivan is a research scientist and wargamer in the Operational Warfighting Division at CNA. She holds a Bachelor's in Mechanical Engineering from the University of Delaware, Go Blue Hens, and a PhD in Material Sciences and Engineering from Georgia Institute of Technology. Welcome to A Better Peace, colleagues. Thank you very much. Glad to Thank be here. Thank you. Yeah, glad to be here. So it's great to have you both here. And to, to I, I have to ask this question is, how did you get into gaming? I understand your, your, your studies that led you to work for CNA, but how, did, how specifically did you get into gaming? I'll go with you first, Erin. Me first. Okay. So I actually sort of fell into it. I never really sought out wargaming as a career, but I love... Um, problem solving. You know, I come from an engineering background um, and I love puzzles and I was recruited to CNA and I thought it sounded like a really fun and interesting job. And I've always had interest in national security issues. So I came up here to give it a shot and I absolutely love it. All right. How about you, Chris? Well, I've always been interested in gaming ever since I was uh, I, I, I was a kid. Um, like so many uh, gamers who grew up as uh, young nerds, I started with Dungeons and Dragons. And hey, yeah, of you course. Said, you said the secret word, Chris, right? If, we were, <laughs> if I were Groucho Marx, the duck would come down right now and you know, we would have just Absolutely. won the grand prize. <laughs> there it is. Um, in fact, the, the first gaming book I bought was, uh, I was I was 13 years old. And it was a Dungeons and Dragons, um, you know, uh, uh, tabletop um, miniatures rule set. 
and I bought it just because it looked cool and I had no idea you know what, what it was and to this day I have still not played with that rule set but I, I have it in my office uh, you know, maybe someday I will but I could never get around to painting the miniatures so if but, we um, were oh, somebody if we were playing D&D right now right I could say that you would obviously step through a time portal and 13 year old you knew that future you would be working in gaming and that's why the book <laughs> seemed interesting to you yes that's it <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, the 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 direct line uh, to working you know, on on war games is really just by accident. Um, you know, much the the way that Aaron did. Uh, I can remember wanting to do games, uh, but didn't really know that it was an option. Uh, in fact, early in my career, about twenty years ago, I asked. Uh, I was working for a a Beltway Bandit, which later got you know acquired by another Beltway Bandit, and I'd ask people about, you know, doing war games and, you know, what we would now call like seminar war games. Uh, I was describing what I, what I thought I wanted to do. And they told me assuredly, no, there's nothing like that. I said, okay. And I forgot about it, but then I ended up at CNA and, um, you know, it was just before the gaming and integration team started up by, uh, Peter Perla and Ed McGrady, uh, who are, of course are a couple of great gurus in, in the field. And basically, they needed a slide monkey, and I was available and happy to volunteer. So that's how I kind of stumbled into uh, into my experience of wargaming. And how does one work one's uh, apprenticeship, right? How do you go from working in the gaming operation to actually being a game designer? Erin, you want to take that one first? Sure. Um, no, that's a, that's a good question. I think for me, it was just shadowing uh, more senior members of the team and helping out with work on various games. And then as you sort of get better, you can start taking them on yourself and start project directing and start then designing the games. And and it just, it's sort of an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. I guess that's the best way to describe it. So Chris, let me ask you this, because this is what I'm curious about too, is um, in your work at CNA, how much of what you do is creating new games versus using sort of classic versions of games that that CNA has already developed to to work with uh, with clients? That that's a really good question. Um, I would say that we always try to reuse stuff that we have and rarely succeed at doing that. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody's and- just different enough. It is because essentially CNA is a research organization, right? And so the, the Navy and the Department of Defense, they, they come to us when they kind of have a unique problem that needs to be explored. And so we always talk about the games we do as being boutique games. And our comms department said not to describe them as boutique or bespoke, but they are. That's what we do, <laughs> right? When when someone has a... a an analytical problem mm-hmm. that uh, that they need a war game to solve, we will craft a war game to to solve that problem. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, we've been doing this for a very long time, and there are some games that are replayable uh, if you recraft uh, you recraft them based on a different sponsor's need. Um, for example, the operational troop to task war game. Um, Aaron, have you have you run this one? I've not actually been involved in it, but I know it's one that we have played for a number of different sponsors. And it's, it's one of the closest things we come to a replayable game, but Aaron. Yes, I actually, I was thinking of that when you were talking. Um, that was one that we developed 
I was actually the project director for the first time we developed our first version of that game. Um, so it basically looks at, we have analysts at CNA that look at organizational analysis for different uh, commands or organizations that need to restructure or uh, be better for their mission. And we worked with them to create a game that helps explore that space in a more quantitative way mm -hmm. because organizational analysis um, can sometimes be qualitative, which is good. It's an appropriate use, but it, it helped them sort of uh, make their analysis more robust. So mm -hmm. we've been running that type of game in different variations for different sponsors and we tailor it for the sponsor's need, but we have been running that version of a uh, game for a few years now, I think maybe four years, something like that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and are there certain problems uh, or questions or problem areas that lend themselves especially to games um, or can, can anything be turned into a game? If, if, if that were the challenge of customer, yeah. if a client yeah. came and said there was something they wanted a game to deal with, are there any things you'd say, no, we can't game that? I mean, for me, I think you need a very clear objective mm -hmm. um, and you need to frame and scope the problem in a very clear way. So mm -hmm. a game can, I kind of look at it as a math problem. You can't have too many variables. Mm -hmm. You have to sort of scope what you want to do, scope what your objective is and what you want your outcome to be um, in order to design a game for that specific function. Um, I don't know, Chris, if you have any more thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I would say, uh, Ron, you're actually asking two different questions. One is, can you game anything? Uh -huh. And yes, you can absolutely game anything, right? Um, you know, I it, it's it's something I'm I'm always you know, I'll be doing the dishes and like, how do I make a game out of this? Doesn't mean it's going to be a good game, but you know, kind of the gamification, like coming up mechanics. Um, you know, there's a very famous game called the Beer Game. And it's about, you know, manufacturing and distributing beer, right? And it's a, it's a good way to learn about how supply chains work, you know, in a competitive market space. Uh, and you can find it on the internet and download it. It's, uh, it's, it's been done so many times. You can game anything. Now, the second part of the question you're asking, you know, is should you game anything? <laughs> and, and that's where um, often our, our sponsors will come to us and say, you know, I need a war game. And, you know, a real war gamer will say, well, do you really like you might not need a game. And that's a question of whether a, a war game is the appropriate tool to address the analytical question that you're you're looking to answer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, very often it is that is not the right tool. Mm -hmm. Right. And you don't want to just make a war game because it'll be a bad war game. And if you do a bad war game, and you get bad results, then everyone is unhappy. Right. Uh, but, you know, you can address issues through analysis, you know, instead, um, you know, and, and if you do it properly, it should feed into a cycle of research is what we, we talk about how war games and analysis and then real world exercises can all feed off of each other and, and into each other. And so a war game will tease up questions that need to be explored through analysis which uh, need to be proven um, in the field through ideas, which raise more issues for analysis and more concepts that need to be wargamed, right? And so it's a, it's an ongoing cycle and you have to know where the game will fit into it. So if you can, or should you, totally different questions. Yeah, that's, that's, I'm glad you pointed that out because yeah, you're right. This, you know, just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do it. Uh, <laughs> those, are, right. those are words to live by. Well, and, and, and that actually, 
Um, I, while we're speaking of terminology, when you talk about a war game, is a war game a game where you have teams playing against each other? And is that different from other sorts of games where um, everybody is trying to solve a problem and not necessarily playing against each other? Oh, wow. That That is the big question. So, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, <laughs> There's many- a lot of debate on vernacular in the community, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. Um, I don't have a good answer for that one. <laughs> yeah, there, there's there's a lot of debate uh, over over what makes what makes a war game. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, and and everyone does have their own their own different definition. I know Peter Perla's classic definition, which many people have have globbed onto, which is an excellent game for you know, a professional analytical war game. Um, but it emphasizes things such as you need two sides working in opposition. And I don't know if that's always you know, uh, appropriate. We can, again, we can game a lot of different things. If you look at the OT3, the operational troop to task game that Aaron was talking about before, uh, that doesn't have two opposing sides, mm-hmm. right? Um, but you can use the game mechanics to kind of explore that. Is that a war game? Well, you know, how many, uh, you know, definitional arguments can we have about that? Um, so, you know, I, I think that a war game can be anything uh, for the most part, but what we're, then you're getting into the realm of what are games and serious games and what Aaron, I know Aaron likes to use the term non-traditional war games. So okay. uh, you want to talk about that a bit? And yeah, what's, what's a non-traditional war game, Aaron? Sure. And this, this is just my, my vernacular, but um, I use that to describe any of our games that are slightly more um, educational based or in, uh, information gathering, um, things that aren't a typical what you think of uh, when you think of a war game. You can get really, ta- you know, tactical, uh, force-on-force type games. Um, those are a little bit more traditional. Mm-hmm. I think of games like we've done a climate game um, that looked at global security and how climate change affects global security in the long future, right? So that's sort of what I would call a non-traditional game. Mm-hmm. Um We've also done, and that was, again, for educational and training purposes, um, we've done our sexual assault prevention game, uh, which then morphed into a sort of a broader category. We re-ran it as a destructive behaviors game um, to include other destructive behaviors like uh, bullying and suicide. Um, And again, that was was a training game to train people what the indications and warnings of these behaviors could be so that potentially we could stop them. So, and I think those are great use of games because I know I learn best by doing things. So what, what better than to actually immerse yourself in a game and make decisions and explore that decision-making space and you learn new things. So, you know, and Ron, I think this is a point worth, worth driving home for your listeners is that the, the preconceptions that we have based around these terms uh, can often color what people expect and what people want out of it. So you, you'll notice that Aaron and I talk about games you know, generically, uh, whether we're talking about war games or non-traditional war games or serious games. Uh, but a lot of people, when they hear games, they think, well, games are play, games are not serious. It's not something worth investing your time in. And that's that's a real prejudice that exists in uh, a lot of people who really could benefit from the value that they get from games. Um, similarly, we tend to call 
anything that's analytical a war game sometimes, even though that might not be accurate. And there are some you know, potential sponsors who chafe at that. Um, you know, we, when we've worked with the State Department, we have often gotten into you know discussions with you know, well, we don't want to do a war game. It's not it's not about war. It's like okay, okay, fine. Well, then it's just a game. It's like well, we don't think people should be playing games. Okay, well, hold on, let's. <laughs> Talk about really what we what we need here. So the terminology itself can be a, a, a tricky, um, you know, a sticky wicket to 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 get through. Sure. Um, and some people trip on them. I, I was thinking, right? So if if you want to if you want to calm people down, you say we will refer to it as a simulation or an exercise. Right. right? Well, Does now that... now you're bringing into simulations and modeling, mm-hmm. which is something you know something, something very totally different. different. <laughs> well, and and this this actually this this brings up two. Two questions that I'd really like us to discuss. One is the issue of you know, how does one measure um, or evaluate the effectiveness of a game? That's a that's a big philosophical question. And then a very practical question is: is um, are there depending on a depending on the client, depending on the problem, um, uh, do you adjust the scope of a game in 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 terms of the time and space that somebody needs in order to play it um, to achieve the goals? of it. And so in other words, you have sort of a standard yeah. idea about, you know, if, if somebody comes to CNA and says, we want a game, whatever you want to call it to deal with this particular problem, um, does CNA say, well, our standard game, it will require you to set aside 16 hours of gameplay or four hours of gameplay. Yeah. You know, it, I don't think there's a standard model again, coming back to the idea that all of our games are tailored to sure. the particular, the particular need. Uh, and so you can do games and in the conversations we would have with a sponsor, we would kind of determine what the sort of thing they're, they're looking for is some games you might need, you know, five days at a you know location that is not where our sponsors work to get them out of their comfort zone. And it might be a big problem to run through, you know, um, a, a long scenario, or maybe it's something that, uh, it can be done in a shorter period of time, just one day. Uh, I like to use, uh, I like to design games that can be played iteratively mm-hmm. so that, you know, you can play it relatively quickly, but play it several times and get different results each time. So then you can, you've got several different data sets that you can look at and kind of compare and contrast and see what decisions were made at what points in response to which stimuli and, and get a, a different, uh, you know, perspective on, on the problem in, in that regard. So, um, it, it could, it could be, uh, it could be either, uh, either way. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up iterative games because that gets to one of my points when I talk about gaming is that we're not predicting the future, right? Um, the outcome of a war game is, is one possible narrative out of a lot, right? You're exploring the decision-making of the players. And that's what a game is good for, is to put players in a situation where they can make decisions, explore different decisions, and see the consequences of those decisions in a safe environment. And then you can run the game again and have a completely different outcome with even just the same players, right? So it's that's what it's for. We're not... I think sometimes people think the outcome of a war game, well, you know, if the outcome was, was, was bad, quote unquote, um, then, okay, well, that problem is always going to turn out bad. And that's not, that's not the case. Because, because one could imagine a situation where you would have somebody play the game iteratively and see if I decide X, this is what, this is what 
can happen. But if I decide why, let, let's run it again and see if I if I make a different decision. Um, I yeah. was thinking about this in, in a lot of the talk about the, the the ongoing war in Ukraine. Right, we have an example of what happens. You you can line up both sides and say, well, he has more tanks than he does, so therefore he's going to win. But then you actually when you run the operation, when you, when you roll the 20 sided dice, um, you never know what's going to come out. Right. Right. So, and, uh, and that, that brings up the issue of how much you want chance to factor into your, Mm -hmm. your game as well. And, you know, is it chance as opposed to a, a nuanced take on what are the variables that go into those decisions or what factors might you need to consider? Um, you know, games can be very useful for generating those insights that you might need uh, or that you might get out of um, going through a situation in real life, but you don't actually want to go through a war or that situation. Uh, so you, you can still garner some uh, some insight into why an opponent would act a certain way or how they would respond in, in a, a circumstance uh, without... You know, uh, right. You know, while you're in the simulated environment. Yeah, I can see that. And so, so you know, we're not always talking about dice here, right? We're often, yes. there are, there are different things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you, uh, this is, this is a pure curiosity question on my part. And that is, do you as CNA, um, generally, are you the dungeon master who stands over the, I'm going to make my last D reference, I promise. But the, are you, oh, do, you, do, you, do, you <laughs> do you, do you merely, do you merely act as the, the game manager or are there times when you are uh, red team for your, uh, for your client? It doesn't matter. Um, like are there times when, when you want to, when they need you to be the adversary or you to be the other side um, rather than, rather than just taking the, the, the client yeah. and, and break them in, into two teams. Yeah, you mind if I take this one first, yeah, Aaron? Be- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because we uh, we we do both. Um, uh, in fact, you know, we we design games and we'll run them. So we play as the you know as the dungeon master. Uh, but we do have specialists throughout CNA who we who we will bring into our games to play an adversary, to play partners and allies, um, or even just to bring their varied subject matter expertise into the game, whether they're an expert in you know, Marine Corps organization or you know, carrier operations or, or what have you. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, when I started at CNA, I the very first games I was involved in was uh, Peter and Ed reaching out to me as a Middle East subject matter expert. Oh. Uh, because yeah, I, I said I had a varied career at CNA. I came to CNA as an Arabist, and I swore that I would only work on projects where I would get to use my Arabic language skills. Uh, that that did not last very long at all. <laughs> um, but but uh, Ed and, and Peter reached out to me to help you know proofread you know slide decks to make sure that their scenarios were consistent. Um, and then eventually, I started playing as a red player. You know, in in the games, um, and then began to work in the the design field as well. And it was through games that uh, I became exposed to a much wider range of issues and topics. Mm. Um, you know, the the reason that I ended up directing the North Korea uh, portfolio on the adversary analytics team for a while is directly because I started working games, and my boss at the time, uh, Ken Gauze, uh, who is a world renowned you know, North Korea expert, uh, likes to delegate. So, you know, he threw me at, the, at his problems uh, while I was uh, doing games as well. So, you know, for me, games have been a fantastic way to learn a wide range of, of topics. But at CNA, we, we can bring uh, 
subject matter experts together, you know, on whatever topics, and we reach out to people uh, to to bring them into the games as well. Understood. Aaron, what's your experience with the Dungeon Master versus Red Team <laughs> experience? Yeah, so mine's a little bit different than Chris. Um, so I personally haven't played uh, Red myself, mm-hmm. but I think one of the first interactions I had with Chris was probably when he was playing Red on a, on a game um, that I was also working on. So um, I'm, I'm more of a, a game designer and I, I typically stay on that side of the fence just because of my background. Um, I don't have the subject matter expertise in different regions like Chris does, but, um, but yeah, I mean, we do both, you know, but that's why being at CNA is really great is because there are people that you can tap into. Um, you know, I know a number of colleagues that have various subject matter expertise. So if I have a game and I need that, I reach out to them and they can point me in the right direction or they can help with the game. Or sometimes they, they play red or they play green or they play different uh, roles in my games. So interesting. Well, and, and we're, we're just about out of time, but I am, I'm, I wondered what would you say each of you to a, a, a game skeptic? Somebody says, I don't know. I don't know the value of games. Do you have a standard pitch that you give to say, no, you don't understand games can games can do this for you. Um, Aaron, you want to go first? Yeah, I'm thinking that's a, that's a tough one. Um, I mean, I think creating a shared narrative with people that you play the game with is really valuable. Um, And I think that can be underestimated sometimes Mm -hmm. that when you're, you know, in a room with someone and you spend eight hours a day, you know, or you're in there for a while and you're playing a game towards a common goal, having that kind of interaction with people, I think can be really valuable that you sometimes miss in other other context. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, that's one of the things I like most about gaming um, is sort of creating that shared narrative. Yeah. Makes, I, a, lot, I makes would, a lot of sense to me. Go ahead. Chris. <laughs> yeah. I, I would emphasize the fact that, that the vast majority of people learn best when they are doing things. Right. And, and often when we're talking about how people learn and experience the world, it's hearing things, seeing things, doing things, and games will incorporate all of those different aspects and putting people in this situation where they have to make decisions, where they have to act out of, you know, where they have to think through their decisions and where they have to respond to either decisions that others are making or the consequences of their own decisions opens up a space uh, for them to explore, you know, you know, whatever issue it is that they're, that they're looking to, to understand. And so, um, I, I wholly agree with Aaron's, um, you know, uh, points about the, the importance of the convening power and the, the, the sh- creating a shared narrative. But I think just putting people into that simulated environment, uh, you know, allows people to see problems in a totally different light than they would, um, from simply reading a report or listening to a lecture, uh, you know, it, it's it's a wholly different experience. Sure, and obviously can be enriching, and you can end up spending a long career working on these things. Uh, Absolutely, apparently, yes. <laughs> I would always rather play a game than write a paper. Um, yes. I, I have the best job in the world. I always say I get to play games for a living. I mean, 
who wouldn't love that? Oh, I'm, it's, I, it's great. I, I'm sitting here trying to contain my envy, but I thank both <laughs> of you. As I say, for, uh, hosting a podcast isn't bad either, but it's not as much fun as playing games. But thank yeah, you. No, not bad. Uh, this conversation has been terrific. Thank you, uh, Aaron Sullivan. Thank you, Chris Steinitz, for joining us from CNA to talk about Wargaming well, on a better piece. Thank you, Ron. It's a pleasure thank to you. be here. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our programs. Please subscribe to A Better Piece on the, your podcatcher of choice, because by now, if you've listened to this conversation, you should want to subscribe to A Better Piece. And after you have subscribed to A Better Piece, please rate and review this podcast so that others can find out about us too, so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation's over but we look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so, until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.